0: Welcome to the PD tour of the Francis Marion Trail podcast following the driving trails developed by the Francis Marion Trail Commission in South Carolina. You'll hear stories of the Swamp Fox, the Revolutionary War hero, General Francis Marion. The podcast is a creation of the Florence Convention and Visitors Bureau with adaptations of stories collected by the Francis Marion Trail Commission. Some are historical accounts and others may be folklore. We'll let you listen and decide. Links to maps and additional references can be found in the show notes. This episode can be enjoyed while driving to Birch's Mill, near the intersection of Millbranch Road and Old River Road in Pamplico, not far from Millbranch AME Church. You are listening to the Francis Marion Trail Commission self-guided tour of General Francis Marion sites in the Dee region of South Carolina. Along this trail, you'll discover seven sites where the Swamp Fox frequented during the American Revolution. The first stop on this tour is a visit to Birch's Mill, and it begins at Francis Marion University. The first five stories will span approximately 20 minutes, roughly the same travel time to Birch's Mill. Upon arrival, there is interpretive signage describing the events that took place there. Humble beginnings to a great adventure In early August of 1780, General Horatio Gates, the American commander who had defeated the British at Saratoga, was marching a large army toward the British stronghold at Camden, South Carolina. Gates was supremely confident of inflicting another major defeat on the greatest military power in the world at that time. Francis Marion had been injured in Charleston a few months previous and had been evacuated from there due to his injury, thereby escaping capture by the British when they took the city. When Marion was sufficiently healed to travel, he gathered a small band of followers and set out for General Gates' camp near Camden. Colonel Otho Williams of Gates' army gave a colorful description of Marion and his men. Quote, Colonel Marion, a gentleman of South Carolina, had been with the army a few days, attended by a very few followers, distinguished by small leather caps and the wretchedness of their attire. Their number did not exceed twenty men and boys, some white, some black, and all mounted, but most of them miserably equipped. Their appearance was in fact so burlesque that it was with much difficulty the diversion of the regular soldiery was restrained by the officers, and the general himself was glad of an opportunity of detaching Colonel Marion, at his own instance, toward the interior of South Carolina with orders to watch the motions of the enemy and furnish intelligence. Gates was apparently unimpressed, perhaps even embarrassed, by Marion's wretched little band, and did not feel he needed them to defeat the British at Camden. He therefore ordered Marion to leave the army at Camden and head south to burn boats, gather intelligence, and hamper a British retreat after his anticipated victory over the British. On August 15th, Marion and his men left General Gates' army following the commander's orders to prevent the British retreat. Marion's troops reached the camp of the Williamsburg Militia at Witherspoon's Ferry, present-day Johnsonville, on August 17th, at which time Marion assumed command of the eagerly awaiting militia. Shortly after General Gates rid himself of Marion's little ragtop group, his army was virtually annihilated by the British at Camden. Gates had done Marion a great favor by sending him away and had set the stage for some of the greatest adventures and military exploits in American history. David vs. Goliath at Fort Moultrie On April nineteenth, seventeen seventy five, the first shots of the Revolutionary War were fired in Lexington, Massachusetts. Soon after, Francis Marion found himself a captain in the second regiment of South Carolina under Colonel William Moultrie. As seventeen seventy six dawned, Governor Rutledge decided to fortify the entrance to Charleston Harbor against an anticipated invasion. Sullivan's Island was chosen as the site for a fort of palmetto logs and sand. On June 4th, a powerful British fleet under Sir Henry Clinton dropped anchor off Charleston. On June 28th, the British warships moved into position opposite the fort and began to throw 13-inch mortar shells into the unfinished fort. Four other warships fired solid shot at a range of 400 yards, but the spongy palmetto logs and sand absorbed the shot. The fort was short of powder, so Colonel Moultrie ordered his troops to fire slowly. The fort's gun crews took careful aim, fired slowly, and began finding their mark among the British warships. What must have first appeared to the British as a weak and easily defeated target was proving to be a tough nut capable of accurate gunnery, which began to inflict severe damage on the powerful British warships. Among the Britons injured on the warships Bristol and Experiment were Commodore Parker, Lord Cornwallis, Governor Campbell, and Captains Morris and Scott. To try to silence the fort, the British ships Actaeon, Sphinx, and Siren tried to round Sullivan's Island to fire at a more deadly angle. All three ships missed the channel and grounded. Recently promoted Major Francis Marion commanded the heavy cannon on the left wing of the fort, directing a deadly fire the entire day. Lieutenant Gabriel Marion, made a heroic run across open space in the fort to retrieve a new supply of gunpowder. Sergeant William Jasper replaced the fort's flagstaff, running through heavy cannon fire in front of the fort to do so. Legend says that Francis Marion asked Moultrie for permission to fire the last shot as the battered and defeated British fleet departed at sunset. The story, possibly true, Also says that Marion's carefully aimed shot ripped into the British flagship. This entire engagement was David versus Goliath, revisited with Francis Marion as one of the principal players. Charleston would fall later in the war, but this day belonged to the Patriots. Sergeant Jasper's Heroics Instant heroes do not come along every day, but when one does, it is hard to keep the stories about them from becoming mere legends. The gallantry of Sergeant William Jasper is so grounded in reality and backed by official recognition that its retelling doesn't need to be embellished, it stands as strongly upright as did the flag he planted at Fort Moultrie. The morning of June 28, 1776, began with General William Moultrie and his division of men looking out from their posts at the fort to witness the presence of nine British men of war. None other than Lord Cornwallis himself commanded the flagship Bristol. He was joined in battle by men whose names would become well known, including Commodore Peter Parker, who hoisted the signal to attack Fort Moultrie from abroad the Thunder. Fort Moultrie had been constructed with palmetto logs and sand, a fact that allowed her to diffuse the impact of the British solid shot. Throughout the battle, which included an unsuccessful repositioning of the ships, the fort flew her regimental standard, a blue flag adorned with a silver crescent and the word liberty. With British fire raging against his fellow patriots, Sergeant Jasper was informed that the fort's towering flagstaff had been knocked down. Quote, Concern quickly grew among Moultrie's men that the absence of the flag would be taken by friend and enemy to mean that the fort had been struck its colors in preparation for capitulation. It would not be a simple task to get the flag to fly again. "'Sergeant Jasper, knowing that he had to first regain the fallen colors and then find another staff upon which to raise it, made his way outside the fort. "'He ran through heavy enemy fire in order to reach the flag, then upon cutting it loose from its staff, proceeded to scale the wall of the fort to regain entry. "'Captain Peter Uri's men's provided a makeshift flagstaff upon which Jasper attached the colors.' With the battle raging about him, he planted the flag near the summit of the fort and returned to his station. When that particular battle was well behind him, Sergeant William Jasper would find himself being presented with the dress sword of South Carolina Governor John Rutledge. The ceremony to honor Jasper's bravery included an official proclamation from the governor to, quote, wear it in remembrance of the 28th day of June and in remembrance of me, Remarkably, Sergeant William Jasper would call upon his ever-present spirit of bravery once again in the defense of a flag. Lieutenant Colonel Francis Marion and the 2nd Regiment from Fort Moultrie were ordered to join General Lee's Continentals and the Charleston Militia in a combined American-French attack against General Provost, who had his men solidly billeted in Savannah. The French admiral, Count D'Estaing, rashly disembarked his troops, moved upon Savannah, and summoned a surrender from Prevost, even before the Americans could arrive on scene. The British commander asked for and was granted a 24-hour truce in which to consider the ultimatum. Marion was enraged when the news of D'Estaing's impetuous act reached him. Quote, Who ever heard of anything like this before? He passionately bellowed first allow an enemy to entrench and then fight him." Entrench was exactly what the British did, to no one's surprise. It became evident after four days of bombardment against the newly fortified Spring Hill Redoubt that a new plan must be enacted by the joint American and French troops. Marion joined his second regiment with the Charleston militia and followed Count Pulaski and his legion up Spring Hill. In true form, Marion led his men with Valor, even though the enemy fire was great. Once again, the silver-crescented blue flag of the 2nd Regiment had been carried into battle, this time carried by Lieutenant John Bush. Bush soon became the wounded victim of a Tory marksman, but was able to pass the flag to none other than Sergeant William Jasper. Although this would prove to be Jasper's last battle, The hero of Fort Moultrie would add yet another page to his story before death overtook him. Upon receiving the flag, he attempted to make his way uphill to plant it, only to meet his own bullet from a Tory marksman. Before dying, however, he handed the flag back to Bush, who would, within moments, succumb to a musketeer. Lieutenant James Gray retrieved the blue and silver flag, now stained with the blood of brave patriots from under the mortally wounded body of John Bush, planted on the Spring Hill Redoubt, then fall victim to his own date with destiny. Andrew Hunter and Red Doe After taking Charleston in May 1780, the British had rapidly extended their control to the coastal settlements and the backcountry hamlets of 96 and Camden, and Continental troops and Whig militiamen had fought hard to drive them back to Charleston. In the area around the Peaty River, General Francis Marion and his partisans waged guerrilla warfare against British and Tory forces. In late 1781 and 1782, as the war drew to a close, Loyalists in the Carolinas became increasingly desperate. In September 1781, North Carolina Loyalists, Colonels Hector McNeil and David Fanning, moved against the state capital of Hillsborough, capturing 200 Continental soldiers. The governor, and leading Whigs. They released sixty Tory prisoners and escaped toward the coast. Throughout the winter, they stirred up local Loyalists along the Waccamaw and the PD and marauded against Whig settlements. In the spring, the governors of the two Carolinas sent Francis Marion in a joint expedition against the Tories. After a brief skirmish, Ganey sued for an armistice. He and Marion met at Birch's Mill in early June and more than five hundred of Ganey's men laid down their arms. In July, Marion returned to the Santee. But Fanning's men, still in the area around Mars Bluff, were excluded from the deal. They attempted instead to make their way to the safety of British-occupied Charleston. One of Marion's scouts along the PD was Andrew Hunter, a prosperous planter and mill owner in St. David's Parish. He owned several hundred acres of farmland near the junction of High Hill Creek and Black Creek, near the present boundary of Florence and Darlington Counties, and his two mills had supplied mill and corn to the Whigs during the war. Sometime in the late summer, Hunter unexpectedly came upon Fanning and his men. The Tories seized him and brought him to their camp on the Mars Bluff Ferry Road, today's Palmetto Street. After a perfunctory trial, Hunter was sentenced to hang after breakfast the next day. While the meal was being prepared, Hunter eluded his guards and jumped on Fanning's favorite horse. Named Red Doe for her coloring, she was a rare animal, strong, fast, smart, and gentle. Hoping to save his prized mare, Fanning shouted to his men to shoot high at the fleeting prisoner. Hunter was wounded in the back, the bullet exiting just above the shoulder blade, but he kept riding down the ferry road, hoping to reach friends on the other side of the Great P.D. In the path to Hunter's escape were Middle Branch Creek and the canal for Gregg's Mill Pond, which cut across the road. Normally a bridge traversed the Mill Pond Canal, But as he approached, Hunter saw that the bridge was out. With the Tories pressing behind, he spurred on the mare to make the jump. She cleared the canal with a single graceful bound. Unable to make such a strenuous jump, Fanning's men were delayed in their pursuit. Hunter gained the lead, and when he reached the great PD at Mars Bluff Ferry, the gallant mare plunged into the river and swam to the safety of the east side. Having made good his escape, Hunter paused on the bank, stood in his stirrups, and shouted defiantly to the Tories on the opposite shore, Go tell Captain Fanning that Tory accursed that before the said hanging to catch Hunter first. Not only did Hunter have Fanning's horse, but his saddle, holsters, pistol, and papers. He sought shelter among friends in the Wahee Neck section of Prince Frederick Parish, modern Marion County, and was soon nursed back to health. Fanning and his men proceeded to Charleston. Fanning prized this horse so much that he made several attempts to recover her. According to Fanning's account, some time later he went to Hunter's home and seized his wife in hopes of exchanging her for the horse. Some authorities, though, discount this version. In September 1782, Fanning and a party of Tories returned to Mars Bluff in another attempt to recapture the horse, harassing local Whigs in the process. One of them, Robert Gregg, heard that Fanning was coming. As Fanning approached his home, Gregg tried to shoot him, but his gun failed. Gregg ran for nearby Poke Swamp to hide, but failed to make his escape before being shot in the hip by some of Fanning's men. Thinking that the wound was fatal, the Tories left him to die. He lived, but was crippled for the rest of his life. According to local lore, Red Doe was in the area, but had been moved to safety before Fanning's arrival. With only a handful of men with him, Fanning retreated to Charleston, having failed again to find his horse. In Charleston, after the war's end, Fanning met Hunter riding red doe. The incensed Fanning challenged Hunter to a duel, but he failed to show at the appointed time. His last frustration came when a lawsuit to recover his horse was rejected by a Darlington court. Like several thousand other loyalists, Fanning finally moved to Canada, where he died in 1825. Hunter kept Red Doe as long as she lived. When the prized horse died, the grateful Hunter buried her on a bluff on the Great Petey River across which she had carried him to safety. After the war, Hunter amassed eight plantations and many slaves. He represented St. David's Parish from 1787-88 to and Darlington County from 1796-97 through in the South Carolina House of Representatives and served on commissions for roads, navigations, and a new courthouse and jail. He died in Darlington District, South Carolina, 1823. An enemy surrenders and a demon is defended. Birch's Mill Francis Marion was a man of his word. The following story written by Robert Bass in Swamp Fox exemplifies Marion's ability to protect a pardoned Tory who Marion believed committed crimes that had, quote, villainy unparalleled. In the late spring of 1782, the war was being won by the Patriots, and Marion was trying to push the British back to Charleston. However, the infamous Tory David Fanning was again causing trouble by stirring up Tories led by Micaja Ganey. Fanning led raids into Britain's neck. Horses were being stolen, and much mischief was being perpetrated by Fanning and some of Ganey's militia. The governors of North and South Carolina asked Marion to put a stop to this activity. Marion called out the militia from Britain's Neck and had them man redoubts at Dunham's Bluff and Port's Ferry on the Great P.D. The widow Jenkins saw James, her 16-year-old son, march off to war, which had already cost three members of her family. Marion himself led Colonel Hezekiah Mayhem's Dragoons, or Mounted Infantry, through Williamsburg and up the Great P.D. After a brief skirmish with the Dragoons led by Marion, Ganey sued for armistice. Marion invited him to cross the Great P.D. and come to a conference at Birch's Mill. However, many of Marion's officers declared that such a meeting was beneath the dignity of the Swamp Fox. Francis Marion was unperturbed. Guided by humane principles, he knew that there would have to be forgiveness of enemies if the country were to be united and happy after the war. To the aforesaid officers and other critics, he replied modestly, quote, I aim at no higher dignity than that of serving my country. End quote. Marion and Ganey met at Birch's Mill on june eighth, seventeen eighty two. They sat down together, after an intense negotiation, signed an equitable treaty. It was agreed that the Tories should restore all plundered property wherever possible, demean themselves as peaceful citizens, and submit to the laws of the state, and sign a Declaration of Allegiance to South Carolina and to the United States. After submitting to these terms, more than 500 of Ganey's followers laid down their arms at Bowling Green, midway between the Great Petey and the Little Petey Rivers. "'Honor, sir,' Requires that I should yield my commission to the Colonel Balfour from whom I have received it, Major Ganey told Marion in asking permission to go to Charleston, quote, but this done, I shall immediately return to the country and seek your protection. Seldom has the generosity of a noble spirit been better rewarded. Mi surrendered his commission to colonel balfour and resigned from the loyalist militia true to his promise he returned by way of marion's headquarters and with many of his followers enlisted for the six months required by law to obtain full pardon all served loyally until the end of the war while general marion was at birch's mill a tory named jeff butler came to seek amnesty he had been cruel in his treatment of the whigs along the pd and feelings against him ran very high when the general began treating with the man, some of his militiamen sent a message that no matter what was promised, they intended to kill the scoundrel. Immediately taking Butler into his own tent, Marion told his men, quote, Relying on the pardon offered, the man whom you would destroy has submitted. Both law and honor sanction my resolution to protect him with my life. Butler shall be dragged to death from your tent. "'To defend such a wretch is an insult to humanity,' the men replied. Marion gave no answer. Quietly he called his officers and asked them to send for their most trusted followers. "'Prepare to give me your assistance,' he told the soldiers, "'for though I consider the villainy of Butler unparalleled, yet acting under the orders as I am, I am bound to defend him. I will do so or perish.' That night a strong guard spirited Butler away to safety." At this time, you should be at or near your destination, Birch's Mill.